Chapter Thirty Six of Adam Bede. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Ashworth, Brisbane, Australia. Adam Bede by George Eliot. Chapter Thirty Six. The Journey of Hope. A long, lonely journey with sadness in the heart, away from the familiar to the strange. That is a hard and dreary thing even to the rich, the strong, the instructed. A hard thing even when we are called by duty, not urged by dread. What was it then to Hetty? With her poor narrow thoughts, no longer melting into vague hopes, but pressed upon the chill of definite fear, repeating again and again the same small round of memories, shaping again and again the same childish, doubtful images of what was to come seeing nothing in this wide world but the little history of her own pleasures and pains, with so little money in her pocket, and the way so long and difficult. Unless she could afford always to go in the coaches, and she felt sure she could not, for the journey to Stoniton was more expensive than she had expected, it was plain that she must trust to carriers' carts or slow wagons, and what a time it would be before she could get to the end of her journey. The burly old coachman from Oakbourne, seeing such a pretty young woman among the outside passengers, had invited her to come and sit beside him, and feeling that it became him as a man and a coachman to open the dialogue with a joke, he applied himself as soon as they were off the stones to the elaboration of one suitable in all respects. After many cuts with his whip, and glances at Hetty out of the corner of his eye, he lifted his lips above the edge of his wrapper and said, "'He's pretty nigh six foot, I'll be bound.' "'Isna he now?' "'Who?' said Hetty, rather startled. "'Why, the sweetheart as you've left behind, "'or else him as you're going arter. "'Which is it?' "'Hetty felt her face flushing and then turned pale. "'She thought this coachman must know something about her. "'He must know Adam, and might tell him where she was gone, "'for it is difficult to country people "'to believe that those who make a figure in their own parish "'are not known everywhere else.' and it was equally difficult to Hetty to understand that chance words could happen to apply closely to her circumstances. She was too frightened to speak. "'Hey, hey,' said the coachman, seeing that his joke was not so gratifying as he had expected. "'You munna take it too serious. "'If he's behaved ill, get another. "'Such a pretty lass as you can get a sweetheart any day.' Hetty's fear was allayed by and by, when she found that the coachman made no further allusion to her personal concerns, but it still had the effect of preventing her from asking him what were the places on the road to Windsor. She told him she was only going a little way out of Stoniton, and when she got down at the inn where the coach stopped, she hastened away with her basket to another part of the town. When she had formed her plan of going to Windsor, she had not foreseen any difficulties except that of getting away, and after she had overcome this by proposing the visit to Dinah, her thoughts flew to the meeting with Arthur and the question how he would behave to her, not resting on any probable incidents of the journey. She was too entirely ignorant of travelling to imagine any of its details, and with all her store of money, her three guineas, in her pocket, she thought herself amply provided. It was not until she found how much it cost her to get to Stoniton that she began to be alarmed about the journey, and then, for the first time, she felt her ignorance as to the places that must be passed on her way. Oppressed with this new alarm, she walked along the grim Stoniton streets, and at last turned into a shabby little inn where she hoped to get a cheap lodging for the night. 
Here she asked the landlord if he could tell her what places she must go to, to get to Windsor. Well, I can't rightly say. Windsor must be pretty nigh London, for it's where the king lives, was the answer. Anyhow, you'd best go to Ashby next. That's southard. But there's as many places from here to London as there's houses in Stoniton, by what I can make out. I've never been no traveller myself. But how comes a lone young woman like you to be thinking o' taking such a journey as that? I'm going to my brother. He's a soldier at Windsor, said Hetty, frightened at the landlord's questioning look. I can't afford to go by the coach. Do you think there's a cart goes toward Ashby in the morning? Yes, there may be carts, if anybody knowed where they started from, but you might run over the town before you found out. You'd best set off and walk, and trust to summit overtaking you. Every word sank like lead on Hetty's spirits. She saw the journey stretch bit by bit before her now. Even to get to Ashby seemed a hard thing. It might take the day, for what she knew, and that was nothing to the rest of the journey. But it must be done. She must get to Arthur. Oh, how she yearned to be again with somebody who would care for her. She who had never got up in the morning without the certainty of seeing familiar faces, people on whom she had an acknowledged claim, whose father's journey had been to Rossiter on the pillion with her uncle, whose thoughts had always been taking holiday in dreams of pleasure, because all the business of her life was managed for her, this kitten-like Hetty, who till a few months ago had never felt any other grief than that of envying Mary Burge a new ribbon, or being girded at by her aunt for neglecting Totty, who must now make her toilsome way in loneliness, her peaceful home left behind for ever, and nothing but a tremulous hope of distant refuge before her. Now, for the first time, as she lay down to-night in the strange hard bed, she felt that her home had been a happy one, that her uncle had been very good to her, that her quiet lot at Hayslope, among the things and people she knew, with her little pride in her one best gown and bonnet, and nothing to hide from any one, was what she would like to wake up to as a reality and find that all the feverish life she had known besides was a short nightmare. She thought of all she had left behind with yearning regret for her own sake. Her own misery filled her heart. There was no room in it for other people's sorrow. And yet, before the cruel letter, Arthur had been so tender and loving. The memory of that had still a charm for her, though it was no more than a soothing draught that just made pain bearable for Hetty could conceive no other existence for herself in future than a hidden one, and a hidden life, even with love, would have had no delights for her, still less a life mingled with shame. She knew no romances, and had only a feeble share in the feelings which are the source of romance, so that well-read ladies may find it difficult to understand her state of mind. She was too ignorant of everything beyond the simple notions and habits in which she had been brought up, to have any more definite idea of her probable future than that Arthur would take care of her somehow and shelter her from anger and scorn. He would not marry her and make her a lady, and apart from that she could think of nothing he could give towards which she looked with longing and ambition. The next morning she rose early, and taking only some milk and bread for her breakfast, set out to walk on the road towards Ashby, under a leaden-coloured sky, with a narrowing streak of yellow, like a departing hope, on the edge of the horizon. Now in her faintness of heart at the length and difficulty of her journey, she was most of all afraid of spending her money, and becoming so destitute that she would have to ask people's charity. 
for Hetty had the pride not only of a proud nature, but of a proud class, a class that pays the most poor rates, and most shudders at the idea of profiting by a poor rate. It had not yet occurred to her that she might get money for her locket and earrings, which she carried with her, and she applied all her small arithmetic and knowledge of prices to calculating how many meals and how many rides were contained in her two guineas, and the odd shillings, which had a melancholy look, as if they were the pale ashes of the other bright flaming coin. For the first few miles out of Stoniton she walked on bravely, always fixing on some tree or gate or projecting bush at the most distant visible point in the road as a goal, and feeling a faint joy when she had reached it. But when she came to the fourth milestone, the first she had happened to notice among the long grass by the roadside, and read that she was still only four miles beyond Stoniton, her courage sank. She had come only this little way and yet felt tired, and almost hungry again in the keen morning air. For though Hetty was accustomed to much movement and exertion indoors, she was not used to long walks which produced quite a different sort of fatigue from that of household activity. As she was looking at the milestone, she felt some drops falling on her face. It was beginning to rain. Here was a new trouble which had not entered into her sad thoughts before, and quite weighed down by this sudden addition to her burden, she sat down on the step of a stile and began to sob hysterically. The beginning of hardship is like the first taste of bitter food. It seems for a moment unbearable. Yet if there is nothing else to satisfy our hunger, we take another bite and find it possible to go on. When Hetty recovered from her burst of weeping, she rallied her fainting courage. It was raining, and she must try to get on to a village where she might find rest and shelter. Presently, as she walked on wearily, she heard the rumbling of heavy wheels behind her. A covered wagon was coming, creeping slowly along with a slouching driver cracking his whip beside the horses. She waited for it, thinking that if the wagoner were not a very sour-looking man, she would ask him to take her up. As the wagon approached her, the driver had fallen behind, but there was something in the front of the big vehicle which encouraged her. At any previous moment in her life she would not have noticed it, but now the new susceptibility that suffering had awakened in her caused this object to impress her strongly. It was only a small white and liver-coloured spaniel which sat on the front ledge of the wagon, with large timid eyes and an incessant trembling in the body, such as you may have seen in some of these small creatures. Hetty cared little for animals, as you know, but at this moment she felt as if the helpless, timid creature had some fellowship with her, and without being quite aware of the reason, she was less doubtful about speaking to the driver, who now came forward, a large, ruddy man with a sack over his shoulders, by way of scarf or mantle. "'Could you take me up in your wagon if you're going towards Ashby?' said Hetty. "'I'll pay you for it.' "'Or,' oh, said the big fellow, with that slowly dawning smile which belongs to heavy faces, I can take you up forced enough without being paid for it, if you don't mind lying a bit closish atop of the woolpacks. Where do you come from? And what do you want at Ashby? I come from Stoniton. I'm going a long way to Windsor. What? Out of some service or what? Going to my brother, he's a soldier there. Well, I'm going no further nor Leicester, and fur enough too, but I'll take you, if you don't mind being a bit long on the road. The hosses won't feel your weight no more nor they feel the little doog there, as I puck up on the road a fortnight ago. He war lost, I believe, 
and's been all of a tremble ever sin. Come, gear us your basket, and come behind, and let me put you in. To lie on the wool-packs, with a cranny left between the curtains of the awning to let in the air, was luxury to Hetty now, and she half slept away the hours till the driver came to ask her if she wanted to get down and have some victual. He himself was going to eat his dinner at this public. Late at night they reached Leicester, and so the second day of Hetty's journey was passed. She had spent no money except what she had paid for her food, but she felt that this slow journeying would be intolerable for her another day, and in the morning she found her way to a coach-office to ask about the road to Windsor, and see if it would cost her too much to go part of the distance by coach again. Yes, the distance was too great, the coaches were too dear, she must give them up, but the elderly clerk at the office, touched by her pretty anxious face, wrote down for her the names of the chief places she must pass through. This was the only comfort she got in Leicester, for the men stared at her as she went along the street, and for the first time in her life Hetty wished no one would look at her. She set out walking again, but this day she was fortunate, for she was soon overtaken by a carrier's cart which carried her to Hinkley, and by the help of a return chaise, with a drunken postillion, who frightened her by driving like Jehu the son of Nimshi, and shouting hilarious remarks at her, twisting himself backwards on his saddle, she was before night in the heart of woody Warwickshire. But still almost a hundred miles from Windsor, they told her. Oh, what a large world it was, and what hard work for her to find her way in it. She went by mistake to Stratford-on-Avon, finding Stratford set down in her list of places, and then she was told she had come a long way out of the right road. It was not till the fifth day that she got to Stony Stratford. That seems but a slight journey as you look at the map, or remember your own pleasant travels to and from the meadowy banks of the Avon. But how wearily long it was to Hetty! It seemed to her as if this country of flat fields and hedgerows and dotted houses and villages and market towns, all so much alike to her indifferent eyes, must have no end, and she must go on wandering among them forever, waiting tired at toll-gates for some cart to come, and then finding the cart went only a little way, a very little way, to the miller's a mile off perhaps, and she hated going into the public houses where she must go to get food and ask questions, because there were always men lounging there who stared at her and joked her rudely. Her body was very weary too, with these days of new fatigue and anxiety, they had made her look more pale and worn than all the time of hidden dread she had gone through at home. When at last she reached Stony Stratford, her impatience and weariness had become too strong for her economical caution. She determined to take the coach for the rest of the way, though it should cost her all her remaining money. She would need nothing at Windsor but to find Arthur. When she had paid the fare for the last coach, she had only a shilling and as she got down at the sign of the green man in Windsor at twelve o'clock in the middle of the seventh day, hungry and faint, the coachman came up and begged her to remember him. She put her hand in her pocket and took out the shilling, but the tears came with the sense of exhaustion and the thought that she was giving away her last means of getting food, which she really required before she could go in search of Arthur. As she held out the shilling, she lifted up her dark, tear-filled eyes to the coachman's face and said, can you give me back sixpence? No, no, he said gruffly. Never mind, put the shilling up again. The landlord of the green man had stood near enough to witness this scene, and he was a man whose abundant feeding 
served to keep his good nature, as well as his person, in high condition, and that lovely tearful face of Hetty's would have found out the sensitive fibre in most men. "'Come, young woman, come in,' he said, "'and have a drop of something. "'You're pretty well knocked up. "'I can see that.' "'He took her into the bar and said to his wife, "'Here, missus, take this young woman into the parlour. "'She's a little overcome.' "'For Hetty's tears were falling fast. "'They were merely hysterical tears. "'She thought she had no reason for weeping now "'and was vexed that she was too weak and tired to help it. "'She was at Windsor at last, not far from Arthur.' She looked with eager, hungry eyes at the bread and meat and beer that the landlady brought her, and for some minutes she forgot everything else in the delicious sensations of satisfying hunger and recovering from exhaustion. The landlady sat opposite to her as she ate, and looked at her earnestly. No wonder Hetty had thrown off her bonnet and her curls had fallen down. Her face was all the more touching in its youth and beauty because of its weary look, and the good woman's eyes presently wandered to her figure which in her hurried dressing on her journey she had taken no pains to conceal. Moreover, the stranger's eye detects what the familiar unsuspecting eye leaves unnoticed. "'Why, you're not very fit for travelling,' she said, glancing while she spoke at Hetty's ringless hand. "'Have you come far?' "'Yes,' said Hetty, roused by this question to exert more self-command, and feeling the better for the food she had taken. "'I've come a good long way, and it's very tiring. But I'm better now. Could you tell me which way to go to this place?' Here Hetty took from her pocket a bit of paper. It was the end of Arthur's letter on which he had written his address. While she was speaking, the landlord had come in, and had begun to look at her as earnestly as his wife had done. He took up the piece of paper which Hetty handed across the table and read the address. "'Why, what do you want at this house?' he said. "'It is in the nature of innkeepers and all men who have no pressing business of their own to ask as many questions as possible before giving any information.' "'I want to see a gentleman as is there,' said Hetty. "'But there's no gentleman there,' returned the landlord. "'It's shut up, been shut up this fortnight. "'What gentleman is it you want? "'Perhaps I can let you know where to find him.' "'It's Captain Donnithorne,' said Hetty tremulously, "'her heart beginning to beat painfully at this disappointment of her hope "'that she should find Arthur at once.' "'Captain Donnithorne? "'Stop a bit,' said the landlord slowly. "'Was he in the Loamshire militia?' a tall young officer with a fairish skin and reddish whiskers, and had a servant by the name of Pym? "'Oh, yes,' said Hetty. "'You know him? Where is he?' "'A fine sight o' miles away from here. "'The Loamshire militia's gone to Ireland. "'It's been gone this fortnight.' "'Look there, she's fainting,' said the landlady, "'hastening to support Hetty, "'who had lost her miserable consciousness "'and looked like a beautiful corpse. "'They carried her to the sofa and loosened her dress.' "'Here's a bad business, I suspect,' said the landlord, as he brought in some water. "'Ah, it's plain enough what sort of business it is,' said the wife. "'She's not a common flaunting dratchel, I can see that. "'She looks like a respectable country girl, "'and she comes from a good way off, to judge by her tongue. "'She talks something like that ostler we had that come from the north. "'He was as honest a fellow as we ever had about the house. "'They're all honest folks in the north.' "'I never saw a prettier young woman in my life,' said the husband.' "'She's like a picture in a shop window. "'It goes to one's art to look at her. "'It'd have been a good deal better for her "'if she'd been uglier and had more conduct,' said the landlady, "'who on any charitable construction "'must have been supposed to have more conduct than beauty. "'But she's coming to again. "'Fetch a drop more water.' 
End of chapter 36. Recording by Tony Ashworth, Brisbane, Australia.